Thank you so much, John and Vicky. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we acknowledge that in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we need. We pray that you would enlighten our minds by your Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you have watched the news recently, in some shape or form, you will know that we have some problems with people in authority. We have a prime minister who, it emerges, broke his own rules during a pandemic, plus that other old rule about telling the truth. We have a prince who is alleged to have broken some different kind of rules and in the process broken other people, alleged. Before he's had his day in court, he's been stripped of his royal titles and reduced to a private citizen. What do these two stories have in common? Authority. It's about who has authority and how they use it. Do they use it to serve other people humbly or do they exploit it to serve themselves? Now, we modern people find it very hard to get our, our heads around the idea of kingship, kings. But we do understand authority very well indeed. And we are very aware of the abuse of authority now, and rightly so, much more so than, than would have been the case even 100 years ago in this country. There is enormous outcry about rule-breaking by those who were in authority. You made rules for us, and you broke them. Outrage. And that's true enough. But hold on just a minute. If you had looked out of the window in most streets during the first lockdown, especially in the street where I live, you could see loads of people breaking the rules when it suited them. In fact, rule breaking is completely consistent with our culture's most cherished value, which is self-expression. Here's how it goes. You've got to be true to yourself. Ever heard that? Of course you have. You must be true to yourself. It's sung in every song. It's preached in every film and TV series. Whatever else happens, you must be true to yourself. Because in modern cultures, our understanding of who we are is completely defined by the individual, not by the family, not by the community, the tribe, or the country. Modern cultures say that deep down inside you are certain feelings and desires and dreams and things you want to do. So here's how you find your identity. Look within. Find out who you are, no matter what they say. And you be yourself. And so how do you find out who you are? By looking within. You assert yourself and your desires over against what anybody else says. Regardless of the family, regardless of society, regardless of the rules. You've got to be true to yourself. And that's considered the heroic narrative. And you know, one of the best examples of this was a, was a cartoon for kids, a film called Frozen. Anybody remember Frozen? Pretty much every little girl that I met was singing this song. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Here's how it goes on. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. She goes on to say this. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Wait for this next line. No right 
no wrongs, no rules for me, I'm free. This narrative has been sung into our children. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I'm free because I can, I've, I can uh, define myself. Now that is how our culture defines identity, and yet we don't really want the prime minister to do it, or a prince. But you know, Boris and the prince could say, you know, I've just looked within, and I'm doing, being true to myself, this is who I am. <laughs> but we don't really want that, do we? So we have a real problem in our culture with authority, a real problem. Because on the one hand, we don't want anyone to define rules for us. We want to be the king of our lives. And on the other hand, we want those in authority to accept the rules and be good kings, leaders, princes, prime ministers. So what's the outcome of all this mess? We need the true king. We need the true king. There's only one. His name is Jesus Christ. And this gospel that we're reading, that uh, we've just read for us, Vicky read for us so, so beautifully, tells the story of that king. Now, the Gospel of Mark, in the first 13 verses, it's kind of pulled back the curtain, and we've seen what's really going on behind the scenes. We've learned about the majesty of Jesus. He does things, and things are said of him that only God could do. We've learned about the mission of Jesus to come to this world, to save it, to bring in the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And we've learned about Jesus' attitude, his posture, his meekness. He's a servant king, a servant leader. He is obedient even to death. Jesus is the long-awaited king. But what kind of king is he? What kind of kingdom is he bringing in? Having been appointed by God, what happens? He doesn't go and get enthroned. He gets pushed out into the wilderness where he gets tempted. He's, but he's, he's the king, but we know this. The readers know this. But no one else in the story does. And so Mark is going to take us now through the rest of his book, 15 chapters of people asking, who is this? and then getting the wrong answer. In fact, only one person in the book seems to really get who Jesus is, and it's one of the guys who killed him. Not until chapter 15, verse 39, the Roman centurion suddenly shouts out, surely this man was the son of God. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Today, the curtain is drawn back, and we read of these events in the early days of Jesus' public ministry, and we're going to get some answers to those questions. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is he leading? And my first point today is the summons of the king. The summons. Here it is, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. There's the summons to them and to us. Repent and believe the good news. He's announcing the good news of God, also called the gospel of God. And a gospel is a news report of some awesome, world-changing, life-changing victory. And this good news is a message, a news report from God himself to humanity. This gospel announces that God's kingdom has come near. Now, the kingdom of God is not a place like a spatial kingdom, like the United Kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is the reign of God, the rule of God over human lives and over God's creation. It means 
that God has now entered the fray of human affairs in a way that he's not done before, because Jesus is here. Now that Jesus Christ is here, the world is under new government. There's a new reality. God is on the loose. Isaiah had prayed, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, now God has. Because everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus says, is a bold exclamation that he is God in the flesh. And in light of that kingdom coming, Jesus now commands and summons all of us, no matter who you are, to repent and believe this news. Now, what is repentance? You know, the phrases like repent and believe, it always remind me of the old guys with the sandwich board. You know, they used to get them standing outside football grounds. Repent and believe, you know, the end of the world is nigh. Kind of old-fashioned, repent. We don't use it in everyday life. Repentance means a total change in the direction of your life. Total change. So repentance is literally a turning around. If I was going this way, apologies to those on YouTube, turned around the other way and started going back a completely different direction, that's repenting. So repenting in the Bible is not just about, you know, um, working on a few of your bad habits and characteristics or tidying up your behavior so that people at church approve of you. It means a complete change in the direction of your life and about who you're really living for. We'll come back to more of that later because there are examples of it right here in the passage we read. Why does Jesus say that the kingdom of God is near, not here? Did you notice that? Repent, the kingdom of God has come near. It's because the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, is breaking into humanity, it's breaking into history, but it's not here fully yet. It is inaugurated, not consummated. It is now, it is not yet fully. We live in the in-between times from when Jesus came the first time and his second coming. The first time in humility, the second time in victory. We live in the period of amnesty where the king has graciously extended an invitation. You can still repent and believe. It's not too late. The kingdom of God is near. So the gospel of God announces the kingdom of God. And the command, the summons is repent and believe. Now friends, this is not lifestyle advice. This is not good advice for you to make your life better. It is a royal summons to submit to Jesus. Jesus Christ will be Lord of all or not at all. He doesn't apologize and say, oh, if you don't mind, would you, would you mind coming to church? No, 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 no. Jesus says, repent and believe. Turn your whole life around. One uh, Bible commentator called uh, David Garland writes this. The dominion of God has come near. So near that Mark believes you can touch it in Jesus. The future created by God, the future, is no longer a flickering hope sort of light years away. It has become available in the present, right now. No representative of an earthly king would say, so-and-so has become king. If it pleases you, would you accept him as your king? No. The very announcement that so-and-so is king contains a demand for submission. Jesus' announcement that God is king contains the same absolute demand. 
Have we really grasped that? I wonder sometimes about the way we pray, you know. I remember once playing in a football match a few years ago, obviously, and somebody, there was a bunch of Christians playing football, all standing around a circle in the beginning, and someone prayed, and the guy said, yeah, Lord. Yeah, Lord! Who are you talking to? There's a church planter and a Christian leader and writer in Scotland called Mez McConnell. He's had an extraordinary life. He's written one or two books about his life. Um, one very powerful book called, I think, The Creaking on the Stairs, about his childhood going through one foster family after another and ending up in a really, really terrible situation where his uh, foster mother or stepmom, I can't remember exactly, uh, abused him terribly, really, really horrendously for years. He was a broken young man. He got into crime. He was homeless for quite a long time. He... Um, he was an addict. He was a violent criminal. He robbed a bank, actually, and managed to escape to Spain. He was arrested there because of further activities, brought back to the UK. He was imprisoned. He met some Christians. Now, he felt, he said he felt he was a victim, and he was a victim. He'd been abused and chewed up and spat out. He was a victim. He met Christians, and they gave him a Bible, and he read the book of Romans, and he said... I hated it. I hated it. Because Romans said, you are a wretched sinner. How could I be a wretched sinner? I'm a victim. And then he broke through. It broke through to him. God broke, through, broke into his life. He realized, you know, I have been sinned against, but I am a terrible sinner as well. True of all of us. And then he was freed. Because until that time, he'd never really understood the idea of the liberal God who just loves everyone and accepts them. Where's the justice in that? Now he saw the biblical God whose wrath and judgment are on the sin of the wicked, which is all of us. And in that light, the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ shone out and the love of God to sinners. And he submitted and Mez was free. He was free. And I know what some people here might be thinking. You really don't like the language of submit, do you? got the wrong kind of feeling to it. Maybe you feel infuriated at the idea that someone else would dare to say that you need to change. You refuse to take your sinful state seriously. You rather pin the blame on someone else, something else. I'm a victim, you know. Victimhood means we always have an excuse for our sin because we really have issues with the ultimate authority, which is God. And that's classic modern thinking. But let me just say, this king, Jesus, is not one who wrestles you to the ground with your arm pinned up behind your back and puts his foot on your neck until you finally shout out, submit. That is not how Jesus works. Look at how this king uses his power and authority. Because secondly, he uses it to restore humanity. Look at the authority of the king. And here I'm in verses 21 through to 34. I'm going to go through them at some pace. Because these stories put together... Show us the authority of Jesus Christ in three areas. Firstly, intellectual. Verse 21, they go to Capernaum. The Sabbath comes. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He begins to teach. And people are absolutely amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Really, really interesting. Jesus, the way Jesus teaches is different from anyone they've ever heard before or since. Because Jesus doesn't say, in all Jewish 
um, faithful Jewish uh, preachers or rabbis or people who would read in the synagogues would always say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, because they're not, they're not speaking on their own authority. They're saying, the Lord says this, and I'm just bringing you his message. And that's all, all we do at King's Church, is tell you what the Lord has said. The, the one person who doesn't say that is Jesus. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. See what he's doing? He says, amen, amen, I say to you. Amen means truly. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now that's a claim for authority. It's original authority. Jesus isn't deriving it. He, he says, he's in effect, I'm taking away your right to judge my teaching. No one has the authority to reject any part of Jesus' teaching, nor is there any standard of evaluation of teaching that's higher than Jesus. You don't get Jesus' teaching and sort of line it up against some other authorities and then weigh what you think is right. Jesus says, no, 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 I say to you, and this is what the truth is. That's a huge claim to intellectual authority. No one had ever done it before, and the, the hearers were totally astonished. And therefore, friends, we would be wise to submit our beliefs and our ideas to Jesus. And let me just say this, in every generation, there are aspects, and in every culture, there are aspects of Christian truth that are acceptable to that culture and aspects of Christian truth that are um, offensive. In every culture, if you go to a Muslim-dominated country, a Muslim culture, and talk about the, the free forgiveness and grace of Jesus, they will find it offensive because it sounds unjust. But if you talk in a Muslim country about the biblical ethics of sexuality, they will say, yes, amen, right, good, that's right. Come to a Western country, the same two things get flipped around. We love the idea that God loves everyone and he's gracious and forgiving. But the, the biblical position is more on sexuality is more and more offensive, isn't it? You know this. But Jesus says, this is my teaching and it is authoritative. Therefore, we would we'd be wise to submit our ideas and beliefs to him. Secondly, Jesus has authority that over the spiritual world. Look at this in this synagogue meeting. I love the way that Vicky read this. This man who's there with an impure spirit just sort of screams out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he's trying to let the cat out of the bag too early in the story, this, this, because the spirits know who Jesus is. They recognize him. The demons know. Just imagine that scene. Somebody in the church here now suddenly screamed out. You know, you can just imagine frothing at the mouth. Well, do you mind escorting them out? Put your mask on. Oh, are you skeptical about demons? I mean, you would be in good company to be skeptical about demons. Three quick points. If we believe in God, we must accept the possibility of demons. It's not logically consistent to accept that there is a spiritual being called God, a good supernatural being, and then to refuse to believe that there are any evil ones. You know, it's logically consistent to accept that there might be evil spirits. Secondly, Jesus Christ believed that demons exist, and he encountered them, and the Bible consistently teaches it. So if you accept Jesus... You have to accept this teaching too. 
We can't pick and choose which bits of the Bible fit with us. Thirdly, if you test the hypothesis that demons exist, it does make sense of the evil in our world. Some of the most horrendous, radical evil. The perversion and abuse that has been revealed in the last few years. The Holocaust. Genocides. Now, without demonic influence in the world, it is hard to make sense of these things, I think. Jesus shows awesome power over demons by this exorcism. And this is a step further, because it's not just him claiming authority, he's now demonstrating authority over something that no one else can, can have authority on. It's clear proof. He has real power over supernatural evil. And this, again, is beyond what other spiritual leaders have claimed. Jesus doesn't get out his Harry Potter wand and say, Expelliarmus. You know, he doesn't get a clove of garlic and a silver cross. He doesn't rustle up some great spells and incantations and magic. Uh, he just literally says, shut up and get out. And off the guy goes. He doesn't have to call on a higher power because he is the higher power. Intellectual authority, spiritual authority, thirdly, physical authority. Verses 29 to 34, Jesus leaves the synagogue, they go to James and John's house. Sorry, they, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. And the mother-in-law's in bed with a fever, so they went immediately, told Jesus, and so he goes to her, took her hand and helped her up, and the fever immediately left her to the extent that she was strong enough she wasn't just like recovered but really weak. She's strong enough to just get on with business as usual and, and um, serve food and, and welcome people with hospitality. Incredible power over illness. And this we see again and again and again. Jesus meets physical needs. Now this shows us that he's the king over the physical world as well. And that he's concerned about it. And that he's concerned about it. Many of the people in this room will have physical ailments, sometimes conditions, disabilities, illnesses, things that you, some, in some cases, long-term medical conditions, and it is a, dra a drag and a drain on you. And oh, how you wish it would be different. And does God care? You know, every encounter that Jesus has with a sick person he frees them from it. He heals them. He restores. He meets physical needs as well as spiritual needs. You see, with Jesus, we're not just talking about someone who offers a belief system and promises a ticket to heaven. We're talking about someone who brings about a whole new world. A liberator, a healer, a restorer, a rescuer. And the Bible teaches that what Jesus did then in the first century for a few hundred people, he will do in the future for all his people at the end of time. It's called the world to come. He's promised it, and he guarantees it for you when you trust in him by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Do you see now, friends, his immense authority and what he does with it? He doesn't use it to serve himself and exploit it and for his own pleasures. He uses it to restore people. He delivers them and frees them and rescues them. 
So do you want to be part of God's future? Or do you want to stay in the realm of this dark and sick world? People do struggle with the idea of Jesus Christ's total lordship. They struggle with the idea of submission. But look, deep down, we all really need a king, a leader we can trust, who will use power and authority for the good of others. We all want that. We're made for it. You can tell this because human beings instinctively seek out and serve some higher purpose or a higher goal. Whatever that is, then that's your king, by the way. Whatever you're serving, the ultimate higher good and purpose, that's your king right now. So there is no alternative to being under the rule of a king. Your king may be your career. Ultimately, you'll you'll do anything to service your career. It might be your, your achievements in some other realm. Your family. The approval of other people. If only they they would like me and accept me, then, then, then I'll be okay. That's your king, the approval of others. Your success. Who is it, this is just a diagnostic question, okay? Who is it, or what is it, that influences your behavior so that you actually end up copying them without realizing it? That's your king. If Jesus Christ is not your king, Something else is. And anything else we look to as an authority is a false God. Let me say it again. If Jesus Christ is not your king, something else is. And anything else we look to for our lives as an authority is a false God. And false gods always suck the life out of you and then they kill you. This leads to our final observation, the call of the king. We've heard the summons of the king, repent and believe. We've seen the authority of the king over uh, intellectual, physical, spiritual. Now we hear the call of the king. Verse 16, Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, sees Simon and his brother Andrew casting a a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And then he goes a little bit further along, and then these two guys, James and John, with their father Zebedee. Remember him? Had a spring on, he used to jump out of the pot. No, no one remembers him. James and John are brothers. Simon and Andrew were brothers. We learned this in one of the other Gospels. They're actually partners, business partners. So you've got two sets of brothers, and one set are actually with their dad, and they're preparing the nets. And the other ones are casting the net into the lake. These are fishermen, okay? Just get this picture in your mind. I was talking to uh, Darren, who works here at the center. He's the guy that keeps this place so beautifully clean. And he worked in Israel, in a kibbutz for about four years, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing? To see the sun rise over that Sea of Galilee and the horses lapping. And there are these fishermen. They've been plying the trade for generations. And suddenly this... This person walks along the beach, a 30-year-old, got kind of rough hands, calluses, strong hands, carpenter, and he just says, come, follow me. And they just go. Leave it. 
And then he goes to two others. And there was dad. And dad's passing on the family trade. This is how we live. This is who we are. We're fishermen. He says, James, John, come. Follow me. I will make you fishers of people. And they go. See what happens. The way that Mark writes this story, Jesus abruptly shows up and calls and they come. Now Luke and John fill in more background. They did know Jesus. But not Mark. Mark wants us to feel the immediacy of this. Why? Because he's emphasizing the authority of Jesus the King. And when the King calls and says, come and follow me, you don't start saying, oh, can I go and clean the teeth? Sorry, I've got to take some library books back. I'll be ready next year. I just want to do this at first. No, no, no. The king is calling. Now, where does this lead us? It leads right to your front door. This is what happens when the king comes. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? From the passage, firstly, leave your work. Now, I don't mean you have to quit your job tomorrow, obviously, although you might do. But it means that your role is redefined. Fishing was all they knew. It had been their family trade, probably for generations. It is their livelihood. It is their place in the society. It's their identity. And now Jesus is rewriting the script, and he's giving a new job description. I will make you fishers of people which in the Old Testament background is quite an ominous job description. It means gathering fish, gathering people for the day of judgment. But we're going to find out that Jesus will rescue people from the day of judgment by his actions. Leave work. It redefines you. You're not defined by your job anymore, your career. You're defined because you belong to the king. And your work fits into that, not the other way around. Secondly, leave your family isn't this poignant? They leave dad by the boats. That must have hurt. When Jesus calls, belonging is redefined. Now, your primary loyalty, your primary allegiance is not your family, but Jesus. And a young woman at the church I was at in Manchester who turned up one night to a, a service with a pad with about 100 questions written on it. Uh, she was a PhD student at the university in, in science. She was a very curious thinker. She'd been brought up in Iran uh, by a father, her parents. Her father was the, one of the leading politicians in uh, the hard Islamist party. She came to England. She started exploring. She turned up with her questions. Within a few weeks, she submitted her life to Jesus Christ with all that came with that. She waited until her passport had expired before telling her parents, wise move. They then tried all kinds of things to get her back to Iran, but they couldn't because of the passport. She lost her family and all her connections because Jesus had called. See, there will be times for some here when you have to obey Jesus instead of your parents. Now, you need to balance that with honoring them. One of the commandments, honor your father and mother. We must honor them 
But Jesus just comes first. For some people here, your family will be or are deeply disappointed because you took Jesus so seriously. It's embarrassing. Secondly, Jesus' family is now your family. Jesus' family is now your family. And I don't know how seriously we take this, we Westerners. That means this ragtag group of church misfits in Chesington are now your brothers and sisters. <laughs> and what does that mean? Love your church family. Love your church family. What about that person who wants to drop around at an inconvenient time? What about that person who wants to borrow stuff and not give it back or it's broken? What about that person who actually offended you and didn't say sorry? They made a joke and hurt your feelings. What about that? You've got to treat them like family and not the kind of family that walk out on each other. <laughs> Jesus redefines work and family and it also, he, he says, leave security. The security of what we know. Fishing is their thing. It's the steady job. You know, fishing is great in the Sea of Galilee because you pretty much know that whatever else happens, you can put food on the table and you've got something to sell at the market. You can feed the family. And now they're going to follow this carpenter around the country and sleep rough. What is going to happen? Goodness knows. You take a risk when you follow Jesus. You take a risk. Are you ready to bet your life on him? Jesus Christ is a king. When you follow him, you come under his rule. This is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And when you come into a kingdom, all of you goes in. You know, if someone wants to become a citizen of, the, of Britain, you can't have your leg, your arm, and your ear goes in, but the rest of you stays a Nigerian citizen. Every, all of you comes in in the kingdom. So we've learned what he says. We've learned who he is and what he demands. Total loyalty and allegiance. What does that mean for you tomorrow? Or Wednesday morning or Friday night? What does it mean for you, for Jesus to be your king? What does it look like in the everyday? It's a great question, this, to, to talk about over the after the service or over your Sunday lunch. And certainly in life groups this week, if you're part of those, we will talk about that. What are the implications of this kingship for our lives? I've been in such a discussion more than once. I remember one time somebody said, well, what would it do if, if God asked you to sacrifice, to give up your child? Another person said, what would you do if God asked you to sell everything you have and give it away? And I, I had to say I was challenged by those questions. And I thought, I don't know what I would do. I hope I would, I would be obedient. I thought about it for a couple of days. And then, you know, something dawned on me. Following Jesus isn't usually about big, grand gestures. In fact, it almost never is. It's about the stuff of everyday life. So I do know what Jesus actually asked me to do at the moment. I really do. And I guess you might do too. What he asks of me is very real and down to earth. He asks me not to cheat on my wife in any way. He asks me to say sorry to my kids when I bark at them or neglect to love them. He asked me to keep staying friends with people who hurt me and disappoint me. He asked me to pray and read his word. He asked me to give enough money from my salary that it actually hurts. He asked me to tell the truth and keep my promise, even when that hurts. He asked me not to gossip or tell juicy tales about other people, which I wouldn't say if they were in the room. 
He asked me to keep on repenting, keep on changing, keep on forgiving other people. He asked me not to settle into criticism and a judgmental spirit and harsh evaluation of other people. He asked me to keep my speech pure and not tell lies. He asked me to take the risk of telling non-believing people about him and knowing that they may reject me as a result. You know, Jesus asks all of these things of us, and I think we know that. That's what kingship looks like. But you want to know what the biggest thing Jesus demands of us is? Is that we love. And here is love. 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what being a follower of Jesus means. Become a lover. He asks us to become more loving. So let me ask as we close, is Jesus Christ your king? Are you all in? Or are you trying to pick that some part of your life that isn't under his lordship, you're holding it back? You're holding it so tightly, maybe you think, I just can't let go of this, this favorite sin. Is Lord of all or not at all? Remember them by the boat. Come, follow me. They go. Some people here are lukewarm Christians. I'm not saying this because I know who you are, by the way. <laughs> I'm saying it because in any room this size, they're going to be lukewarm Christians. You're lukewarm. You're kind of a bit over it all. It's all a bit boring. You're sort of here because you have to be. You're really interested in something else. You know, you are forgetting the king. What else could be better to live for? Some here are compromising Christians. You know, as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit is prompting you that there is some area in your life you are betraying Jesus Christ. Take it back today, give it to him, put it at the foot of the cross and leave it there for good. And then there are others here who are suffering Christians. You're enjoying pain, sorrow, grief, the misery of health conditions. Oh, how you need him. You need a king, and we've got one. One who knows what to do with his power and authority. And some here are not Christians. Perhaps as I've been speaking, you realize, you know, I, I actually, I'm not really, I might believe some of this, but I'm not really under Jesus my king and I want to say to you today what else are you waiting for what are you living for what is better than Jesus Christ it's still time he is patient but his patience won't last forever will you come to the king today
time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Lord, we are all without exception so foolish, frail and wicked. How we need you. We ask now in this moment of silence that you would show us by your spirit where we need to repent. Where we're not following. The dearest idol I have known, help me to tear it from its throne and worship you alone. Father, if there's somebody here who is on the brink and they're looking across the doorstep and they know they, want, they need to submit to Jesus, but they're scared. Lord, please give them the courage to take that step and confirm it in their lives, we pray.